Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL, uh, bringing you what we call the American view of law and government. That's the view of our founders, clearly stated in the Declaration of Independence. And the first principle they stated was there is a creator God, the one who made the entire universe, and they identified that clearly as the God of the Bible. There is a creator God. Secondly, our rights come from him and from him alone. And thirdly, and very apropos for what we're talking about today, thirdly, the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights. Now, that was the view of our founders, and that's how they constructed our constitutional republic. But clearly, <laughs> we have gone miles and miles away from that standard. In fact, you might say, if you think of it as a ship, we're so far out to sea that we can no longer see land, land being real constitutional government the way our founders structured it. And we've been out to sea for more than one generation. In fact, uh, there in the boat, there's multiple generations that have turned over, so much so that many of the youngsters today growing up have never seen land. That is, they've never seen constitutional government. They have no idea what it is. They might hear a rumor here and there about it, but they have no idea that it even exists. Is, is it even possible to have uh, such a limited form of government that would only do the job of protecting your God-given rights? And uh, we're here at We the People Constitution Matters to declare that, yes, we can restore that. Yes, we can get the ship back to land. It's not going to be easy. In fact, the series that we're in right now that we're wrapping up this morning, we're laying the, the foundational principles that must be considered in bringing that ship back to constitutional government. That is government that would do what our founders designed. By the way, one of the other God-given rights that our founders mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, that when a government of any sort fails to do that job protecting our God-given rights, then we have another God-given rights, and that right is to alter or to abolish that form of government. And you can tell that the ruling elite today are not happy with that idea. In fact, oh, they've thrown people in the gulag. Yes, there is an American gulag in, in Washington, D.C., and it's where the J6 prisoners have been rotting without trial and process and so on, uh, because they supposedly were fomenting an insurrection which is a lie. No, no, no. They, they were there protesting. They were there, in a sense, uh, seeking a redress of grievances regarding fraudulent elections in the in a number of the states in the presidential election of 2020. So they were they were seeking First Amendment issues and uh, they were wrongly labeled as insurrectionists. They weren't trying to overthrow the government. They were trying to restore the government. But what if what if they, like our founders, reached a conclusion that said, wait a minute, this government is not only failing to protect our God-given rights, and in many ways we could argue that it is not. It is not protecting the right uh, to life of uh, any unborn baby in our country. The most dangerous place in our country is the womb of a woman. You're more likely to be murdered there than in the murder capital of the U.S., uh, Chicago. And I think Baltimore runs second on the murder capital. But you're far more likely to be murdered in your mother's womb in America than any other place. I think maybe on Earth, although yeah, there's some other countries like China that uh, are doing a multi-million dollar murder scheme. So if the government fails and continues and refuses to get back into the job description we the people have given to it to protect our god-given rights we have a god-given right alter to alter that government or to abolish that government and i'm not proposing any abolition of our current government because i know that i'll be uh, you know treated like the j6 prisoners if i do so but i am saying that our founders recognize that we have a God-given right to do so when the government fails at its most important task of protecting our God-given uh, rights. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us uh, your thoughts this morning? Phil, our constitutional instructor, bring us your thoughts on on uh, this final uh, building block in, in laying the foundational principles. Well, before investigating the appropriate structure for a new constitution, there is a last constitutional principle to be considered, emergency proclamations. It is necessary to place boundaries around this subject. There are many situations in which it is appropriate for government, as generally defined, to act in initiating and coordinating activities in response to emergency situations. 
to the extent government does that with other entities, government serves a legitimate purpose. But when the federal government issues an emergency proclamation, not only does it violate the Constitution of the United States, it also jeopardizes individual liberty in a way that goes well beyond other interventions by the federal government. Let's be clear that emergency proclamations are not even necessary when the United States are being attacked by a foreign enemy. The Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor serves as an example. When Japanese planes dropped bombs and torpedoes, no military person would have refrained from striking back before being informed of a presidential proclamation or a congressional declaration of war. Moral teaching and international convention recognize that a victim has the right of defense in response to both actual and threatened attack. That is a matter of natural law recognized by virtually every nation. Outside of the Department of Defense, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, otherwise known as FEMA, reporting to the Department of Homeland Security, currently has a major responsibility for acting within emergency proclamations. Consider the national preparedness goal for the agency. The national preparedness goal defines what it means for the whole community to be prepared for all types of disasters and emergencies. The goal itself is succinct. A secure and resilient nation with capabilities required across the whole community to prevent, protect against, mitigate, respond to, and recover from the threats and hazards that pose the greatest risk. These risks include events such as natural disasters, disease pandemics, chemical spills, and other man-made hazards, terrorist attacks, and cyber attacks. Most of us associate FEMA with responses to natural disasters, but how does it relate to the C uh, CDC concerning disease pandemics, to other departments concerning terrorist attacks and cyber attacks? In a fairy tale world, these agencies and departments of the federal government would all play nicely and divide the work rationally consistent with the general welfare of we the people. Sometimes that happens when administrators of these departments are enlightened. But we can't lose sight of the fact that the people at the top of these bureaucracies are political animals who react to their political instincts, causing bureaucratic overlap, interdepartmental conflict, and failure to focus on the spirit of their department's mission. A quick visit to the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, website provides another perspective on federal emergency response. The Stafford Act, which is Public Law 93-288, provides the authority for the federal government to respond to disasters and emergencies. Under the Stafford Act, the president is authorized to establish a program of disaster prep uh, preparedness that uses services of all appropriate agencies make grants to states upon their request for the development of plans and programs for disaster preparedness and prevention, and ensure that all appropriate federal agencies are prepared to issue warnings of disasters to state and local officials. The Federal Water Pollution Control Act amendments of 1972 and the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 uh, expand the National Contingency Plan to include response to releases of hazardous substances, as well as oil, any navigable waters of the US. The Oil Pollution Act broadens the response and enforcement authorities of the federal government. The, Bureau, uh, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act gives EPA the authority to control hazardous waste from cradle to grave, including its generation, transportation, treatment, storage, and disposal. The Comprehensive Emergency Response, Compensation, and Liability Act expands the National Contingency Plan to apply to releases of any environmental media, uh, to any environmental media, 
and to cover releases at hazardous waste sites requiring emergency removal actions. State and local organizations and chemical facilities also have statutory requirements and responsibilities to prevent, plan, and prepare for and respond to chemical emergencies. The Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act establishes a chemical emergency response plan planning infrastructure at the state and local levels. It requires facilities to provide information about the hazardous chemicals at their facility and participate in the local chemical emergency planning effort. The Clean Air Act, Section 112R, amendments require facilities that use extremely hazardous substances to develop a risk management plan which identifies the potential effects of a chemical accident, identifies steps the facility is taking to prevent an accident, and spells out emergency response procedures should an accident occur. These plans provide valuable information to local fire and police and emergency response personnel to prepare, to prepare for and respond to chemical emergencies in their community. A lot of this is routine operation and should be considered outside of the subject of emergency response. But notice that there are eight references to emergency response on this single page of the Environmental Protection Agency website alone. Have we exhausted all the possibilities of emergency response in federal departments and agencies? Not according to the U.S. Department of the Interior, which states this at its Office of Emergency Management website. Vision, leading the Department of the Interior's emergency management efforts to enhance protection and preservation of the lands and resources with which we are entrusted. Mission. The mission of the Office of Emergency Management is to provide expertise and leadership for the Department's emergency management responsibilities worldwide through the integration of emergency management programs, functions, and supporting activities to prevent, protect against, mitigate the effects of, respond to, and recover from all hazards. Wait, didn't we see something like that at the FEMA website? Certainly. Uh, Federal departments such as the U.S. Department of Education has nothing to do with emergency response. Yes and no. Here's how the schoolsafety.gov website sees the matter. <clears throat> Take a comprehensive approach to school emergency planning by using the five preparedness mission areas. Uh, families and communities expect schools to keep their children safe from a range of emergency events, including natural disasters, crime-related incidents, and accidents, emergency planning is a key component of school safety that can include large-scale actions or everyday activities that help build a safe school environment. Elements of emergency planning include creating a comprehensive school emergency operations plan, holding tabletop exercises to test procedures and protocols, and conducting developmentally appropriate drills so that all members of the school community can practice the actions they would take before, during, and after an emergency. When we dig deeper into schoolsafety.gov, we realize it is not an initiative of a specific department within the federal government, but it is a collaborative interagency website created by the federal government to provide schools and districts with actionable recommendations to create safe and supportive learning environments for students and educators. The site serves as a one-stop access point for information, resources, guidance, and evidence-based practices on a range of school safety topics. On the surface, this is an example of the good side of federal government. Federal agencies and departments coordinating their efforts to the benefit of we the people. That, however, is how the system works today and is no assurance that the federal legislative branch will continue to operate like that under future administrations. 
Many more examples of overlapping authority might be given. And it is tempting to assume that by introducing more modern administrative principles to the federal government, it might be made more efficient. That is, uh, however, uh, I'm sorry, a large scale national governments are based upon human nature and human nature determines that when people gather together to govern other people, they will respond to self-interest first before considering the general welfare. Acting in a political environment, they are free of the constraining influences that are imposed by free market systems. In addition, there is always the career bias that influences decision-making in any activity. This saying is often attributed to Mark Twain, although its source cannot be affirmed. If your only tool is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. Today, there are 535 representatives of the people in the Senate and the House of Representatives. For a population of more than 330 million people, that means that one person represents roughly 617,000 people. Not only does that mean that the average U.S. citizen, uh, United States citizen has no effective access to a congressional representative, it also means that career bias will have an even stronger effect in the federal government than in a private firm. While many career backgrounds exist in Congress, one dominates the career path that begins with a major in political science as an undergraduate, followed by law school education and a career in law. It should not be surprising that those representing us at the federal level see the creation of a better society as a matter of laws and regulations. This is the reason that our nation's founders sought to restrain that natural tendency by distributing government to the states and municipal governments. This is also the principle of subsidiarity as applied to governance, that the coercive powers of government, if necessary, need to be applied by representatives as closely to the people as possible. The exercise of emergency powers is no exception. Perceiving emergencies are the major causes of the growth of big uh, government, according to Robert Higgs in his book uh, on the subject, Crisis and Leviathan, Critical Episodes in the Growth of uh, American Government. Uh, the Mackinac Center advertised its virtual event in May 2020, Crisis and Leviathan, in light of the COVID-19 crisis offering this interpretation of Robert Haig's book. In his classic book, Crisis in Leviathan, economist and historian Robert Higgs shows how big government emerged from responses to national emergencies, which came about as the attitudes of citizens changed. Major events, major world events like the Great War, Great Depression, World War II, and the Cold War kept on coming leading to a host of new federal programs, activities, and functions that left legacies, including greater acceptance of bigger government that endured long after each crisis passed. Crises may be fully natural, such as, her, as a hurricane, or they may be partially or fully contrived. Notwithstanding of the cause of the crisis, government expands in response. Higgs identified a ratchet effect in which government action tends to subside after the crisis passes, but not to the level at which the government operated prior to the crisis. The compound effect over time is the growth of government, marked by big government partially giving back its gains according to that ratchet pattern. That politicians are aware of this tendency is evidenced by the infamous quote by Rahm Emanuel then Chief of Staff to President-elect Barack Obama. You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that is, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. This cynical comment seems out of place in the fairy tale world of government, the world of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But it is the real world of politics, which is particularly apparent at the federal level. The ultimate example of how executive emergency proclamations lead to tyranny 
comes out of the Nazi era. In spite of its historical recency, 1933, it seems that educational systems have largely ignored its implications. There is this feeling that tyranny emerges after a long period of minor losses by the forces of liberty. There is some truth to that in the German experience in concentrated national government. Until the 18th century, Germany was the model of distributed government, although it was not of the representative form. Britannica describes the government of Germany from 1760 to 1815 at the conclusion of the Napoleonic Wars. <clears throat> Germany in the middle of the 18th century was a country that had been drifting in the backwaters of European politics for more than 100 years. The decisive roles in the affairs of the continent were played by those great powers, such as France, England, and Spain, whose economic resources and commercial connections provided a solid foundation for their military might. <clears throat> the German states, on the other hand, floundered in a morass of provincialism and particularism. All the forces that had contributed to the rise of powerful national monarchies west of the Rhine were lacking in the east. <clears throat> in the Holy Roman Empire, the central management was loose, the central government was losing rather than gaining strength. The princes were enlarging their authority at the expense of the crown, and business initiative was being discouraged by the lack of political unity and by the remoteness of the major trade routes. Political power increasingly fell to small regional governments uh, controlled by aristocratic overlords, ecclesiastical dignitaries, or municipal oligarchs. As with much history, there is some truth to the Britannica perspective, and a great deal of myth, which would have us believe that Germany had not become a great nation because it failed to create a centralized government. What that explanation leaves out, uh, excuse me, leaves out is that while both Britain and France were monarchical during this period, and in that sense unified, both nations were developing a separate liberalization that ultimately dominated the central monarchical form. John Locke, for example, published in his second treatise of government in 1689, and Jefferson's uh, Declaration of Independence is dated 1776. The French Revolution, which was characterized by both a terrorist dictatorship and the forces of liberalization, arose in 1789. Concerning Spain, which Britannica describes as a unifying monarchy, it was already well decayed by the beginning of the French Revolution, leading to its overthrow by Napoleon in 1808 and its occupation until 1814. Liberalization was essentially absent in Germany during and after unification of that nation in 1871 under a strong monarchy engineered by Otto von Bismarck. Bismarck, no socialist, but seeing the opportunity to unify the German people, ushered in a socialist safety net program to assure the German people would march in lockstep to whoever was at the top of the leadership ladder. In this sense, tyranny came to Germany as a series of smaller steps designed to crush the freedom of the individual. But there is another side to this story that needs to be told. The Weimar Constitution had an Article 48 that allowed the president in 1933, Paul von Hindenburg, to implement an emergency proclamation suspending civil liberties. It was probably the Nazi Hermann Goering who was responsible for setting the Reichstag fire, which established a false flag setup of the Enabling Act described by the Holocaust uh, Encyclopedia. The Enabling Act allowed the Reich government to issue laws without the consent of Germany's parliament, laying the foundation for the complete Nazification of German society. The law was passed on March 23, 1933, and published the following day. Its full name was The Law to Remedy the Distress of the People and the Reich, 
President Hindenburg conveniently exited life on August 2nd, 1934, and Adolf Hitler combined the roles of chancellor and president in himself. The entire process of moving to a complete dictatorship had taken less than 17 months. There is nothing in the Constitution of the United States that allows the president to proclaim emergency powers suspending the civil rights of the people. But the German experience should be a warning above about how quickly dictatorship can be established when the executive branch of government is granted emergency powers. Again, this is a reminder of the Frankenstein principle that a federation should be formed only for limited enumerated purposes and should never be granted the power to expand itself. If emergency powers are to be granted, and this is only under truly extraordinary circumstances, it must be by the states acting in concert through their council of states. Well, thank you so much, Phil, especially going through all those federal agencies. I suppose every single one of them has some sort of emergency plan. You know, the post office probably has one and, you know, so on and so forth. So all of those emergency powers, you're absolutely right, are extremely dangerous. And yet people would say, well, wait a minute, you know, how are you going to solve these problems like, uh, you know, water pollution or air pollution or, you know, how are you going to solve these problems that are inter interest interstate that is are not confined to one state, but pass from the boundary of one state and affect another state? And those, you know, like you say, are a myriad of different issues. You know, you could have a chemical spill like uh, East Palestine, uh, uh, uh Ohio spilling over, obviously, into Pennsylvania and New York State and, you know, polluting a whole downstream area in the air and not just the water, because on the water, then it hit the Ohio River, which meant the Mississippi River. So, yes, there's there are things that are going to impact multiple states uh, that are emergencies. But I think we need to really get back to what our founders said about emergencies. And here I'm quoting our Maryland state constitution of 1776. In other words, this is the mindset not just present in the Maryland Constitution, but the other uh, state constitutions at the founding of our nation. And they said this in Article 44 of our Declaration of Rights. By the way, a Declaration of Rights is the same thing as a Bill of Rights. It's just phrased differently. And in fact, uh, in Maryland's Constitution, it comes first. So it's kind of like, here's the job description of of the government, we declare these rights. These are the rights that we assign government to protect these God-given rights. And then it lists 47 of them. Well, number 44 is this, that the provisions of the Constitution of the United States and of this state apply as well in time of war as in time of peace and any departure therefrom or violation thereof under the plea of necessity or any other plea is subversive of good government and tends to anarchy and despotism. So one of the other uh, uh, pits you're going to fall into, either anarchy, where everybody's doing whatever they please, everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, or despotism, the government takes control of everyone's life. And you're absolutely right. The, the Nazi takeover was accomplished by an emergency, saying, well, well we got this emergency. Uh, we, we've got a necessity to, to change the structure of government and give all power to the Fuhrer and uh, allow him to make laws that, uh, you know, nobody else uh, uh, can hold him accountable. Uh, and, and so all of that structure, that breakdown that resulted in the Nazi Germany dictatorship was an illustration of what happens when the excuse of emergency powers is entered into. So it's fascinating to me that our founders understood that if you plea that, oh, oh, there's a necessity, we've got this emergency, we've got this tanker spill, and oh no, all this, you know, and we've got to get the federal government and the federal emergency management involved in all of this to, to solve all the problems that are taking place. Our Constitution of Maryland says that plea of necessity for an emergency that would suspend any element any element of the U.S. Constitution or of the Maryland Constitution is subversive. That's right. The, the people that are doing this are subversive of good government. And that, I would say, is exactly what the governor of our state and many other states did during COVID. Oh, we got this pandemic, you know, oh, everybody's going to die if you don't do what we tell you to do. And of course, we know that that wasn't true at all. Yes, it was like a common flu 
Yes, there were people that died from it, but actually no more people died from that flu than died from the seasonal flu that occurs every every year anyhow. So it was a lie that we were being sold, but the emergency was sold very well and so successfully that most American people did not understand this principle and, and were, or were willing to surrender this principle. Uh-oh, we've got an emergency. Uh-oh, we've got a crisis. We've got to surrender our right to travel our right to go to work, our right to worship, and on and on the list of rights go go that uh, were surrendered during what I call the scandemic, because I don't believe it was any worse than the seasonal flu and the, the numbers, the actual numbers of death and so forth illustrate that it was no different at all until the shots began. It was no different at all than uh, the seasonal flu adjusted for uh, various factors. So uh, when we have the plea of necessity, we need to be aware of what we're being led down a rosy path. And, and that's why I appreciate Phil bringing up the history of, uh, of Nazi Germany. How did it come to power? How did it arise out of uh, the structure of their government that was supposed to have all kinds of checks and balances? It arose in the midst of an emergency that, as you rightly point out, Phil, was a false flag. The burning of the Reichstag was something done by those who wanted power. And I would argue the same is true there with COVID. Uh, what was happening in Wuhan was financed by our taxes. Fauci was doing it. He was knowingly financing gain of function to weaponize and create a bioweapon that could be spread worldwide and cause a great panic. So everybody would surrender God-given rights and surrender all kinds of structural government protections, including, by the way, the protection we had built into the system that would protect our elections. That's right. Where did the mail-in ballot fraud come from? And the drop box, all that came. Oh, we got this pandemic and people can't get out of their houses and, and go vote in person. Oh, no, we dare not let that happen. No, no, no. Well, again, the provisions of the Constitution of the United States and of each state apply Equally in time of war as in time of peace, any departure therefrom or violation thereof under a plea of necessity or any other plea is subversive of good government and tends to anarchy and despotism. So the question people would have, well, well then, David, what do you do when there's a, an emergency? That, you know, well, if you look back to our founder structure, it was clear that the agency supposed to deal with emergencies was not something called FEMA. It was not some federal bureaucracy. No, it was very, very local. In fact, it was the local militia. That's right. If there was an emergency, let's say the emergency was confined to one county. You know, there's a tornado that sweeps through one county, makes destruction, doesn't touch any other county. Just this one county is affected by this emergency. The militia is the structure designed by our founders to deal with that emergency. And the militia is supposed to be trained, supposed to meet uh, on a regular basis uh, and, and be able to respond to emergencies as they arise, whether it's a, you know emergency from a storm or you could say emergency from a pandemic or an emergency because there is an invasion of foreigners like a bunch of illegal aliens sweeping across the land and murdering and pillaging as they go. Any emergency, the militia was designed to deal with that. But you might say, well, wait a minute, David, the militia is really a, you know, an antiquated idea. That can't work. Well, it did work. It worked when the lobsterbacks came into Lexington and Concord to confiscate the guns. The militia stood their ground. And yes, they died on Lexington Green and they died at Concord Bridge because they were trained to defend the community when an emergency arose. And I would I would propose that a re invigoration of true militia, not not what people talk about, a bunch of people running around the woods and that sort of thing. But a militia is supposed to be a structure, a government structure that the state establishes, but is established as well on the local level so that each county has its own uh, militia structure. In fact, you could say that militia is also available to the sheriff because it is technically the sheriff's posse. That's right. When the sheriff raises the posse, that's the, the militia, same group of people, they should be trained, they should be armed, they should be prepared and skilled at handling emergencies. But you say, wait a minute, how about a big emergency, a chemical spill that affects more than just their county? Well, yes, that's where the state militia structure 
should be such that it is prepared to deal with emergencies. It has specialists who are prepared to deal with chemical spills and specialists who are dealing with ready to deal with many, many other issues. So you could have at the state level a preparedness structure. But you say, well, wait a minute, what if it goes beyond the boundaries of the state? And yes, there's illustrations like East Palestine, Ohio. Definitely that chemical spill went into Pennsylvania and it went down the river, Ohio River to the Mississippi and it affected enormous areas. And so you need to have a coordinating uh, uh, ability between the state militias. And this, I think, would be where any federal structure that you create would logically be placed. That that federal structure exists to support, to give advice, uh, to prepare information, that it is not above those state militias. Now, because the state militias are independent of the federal government. In fact, they have to be independent of the federal government because one of the dangers that the state militia is designed to protect us against is the federal government going rogue. <laughs> I guess you could say what's happening right now. Yeah. When the federal government goes rogue, then... The state militias are there to defend against a rogue government, just as the the, uh, the patriots there, Lexington and Concord, those militiamen were defending against the rogue government of King George III. Because if you allow centralization of power all in Washington, D.C., and these federal agencies all take control of all the uh, emergency management, you lose your liberty. And you set up just, just what you, you've described, Phil. You set up the, uh, the, the structure that could easily be taken over like a, with a Nazi kind of, uh, uh, false flag and so forth where everything becomes centralized and federalized. So the structure of our founders, I, I believe was very wise, but it's been obviously discarded. And that's since 1903 with the Dick Act, which created the National Guard. And people think, oh yeah, the National Guard is really the militia. No, it is not. In fact, the proof of that was uh, uh, there's legal proof that it's not. But the proof of that in practice was when uh, uh, George W. Bush was requested by the governor of Montana, who was battling wildfires in his in his state, that he could send some of the Montana state militia, bring them home from the wars out out in the Middle East, Iraq and Afghanistan, bring some of his militiamen home or excuse me, not militiamen, National Guardsmen home to deal with the wildfires. And what Bush said, no, no, they belong to me. They're not your National Guard. And that's the truth. The National Guard has been fully federalized. It's just another branch of the military and doesn't belong to the states. It's not under the control of the state governors. So it is not a true militia. And yet what we find when we study our Constitution carefully, the militia is not something that you can oh, take it or leave it. No, the militia, read the Second Amendment, the militia is absolutely essential if you don't have the militia, you don't have the security of a free state, a free state meaning a, a, a civil government that protects and defends your liberty. So it's no wonder that the tyrants who want to abuse the, the powers that we have granted to them and want to rough, run roughshod over our God-given rights, of course, they did not want a militia standing in their way. And so they destroyed the militia beginning in 1903. And then they demonized. That's what currently is taking place. They demonized the militia, even though there's five places in our Constitution that call for militia. And of all the things stated in the Constitution, there's very few that state they're absolutely necessary for a free government. The militia is one of those. Absolutely necessary for a free government. So my proposal to alter uh, the, the government that we currently have is obviously we need to reinvigorate and restructure the militia. And I believe the militia is the proper place for emergency management to take place at the county level, the state level. And the only function the federal government would have would be to support that work done by the states and done by uh, the counties, by uh, those local militias. Your thoughts, Phil? Well, uh, first of all, um, Pennsylvania is also also places a Bill of Rights first in its constitution. And I believe many of the states do. Uh, and that is consistent with the, the principle of representative government. And the basic idea is the idea of uh, uh, the people being sovereign. They're giving up certain rights to the states to establish themselves and granting the states uh, what have been called police powers. And then ultimately, the states contracted with uh, an organization to be created, 
they can they contracted amongst themselves to create this organization called the federal government. So basically, you have to really, if you want the emphasis to be appropriate, you have to start out with a uh, uh, your first article in the Constitution as being a Bill of Rights. I think that makes a lot of sense. The second on the uh, idea on COVID-19, uh, there are something like 200 or more pathogens that are listed by health agencies. And that list grows, by the way. It grows, you know, almost every five years, there are additional uh, pathogens that we become aware of, both bacteria and viruses. Now, there are other categories as well, but those are the two most important. Now, uh, the outrage that we see in in the handling of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic was the forcing of masking on the population. And really, you could say, well, uh, surgeons wear cloth masks when they're, they're performing surgery. Why do they do that? To prevent cross-pollination of respiratory bacteria, not viruses. It is well known by surgeons that viruses have a particle size that are so small that they go right through those cloth masks. And yet, they were forced on the people. Why? To impress upon the people that they were subservient. Really, when you think in terms of um, the bacteria, uh, think in terms of, of having a handful of dried peas and throw them through a uh, chain link fence. <laughs> and that will give you an idea of the effectiveness of these masks against viruses. Well, yes, exactly. Somebody said, you know, keeping out the, uh, the virus by the, the cloth mask is like putting up a chain link fence to stop uh, mosquitoes. <laughs> it doesn't work at all. And so, yes, it was obviously when they told us follow the science, that was a lie. They were not following the science. No, no, no. That, that was a propaganda lie. And so I think COVID was a, was a wake-up call to America. And I, I hope a lot of people are paying attention now. But the wake-up call of the kind of tyrannical powers that the federal government has now claimed under, I don't know what you call a medical mafia, uh, because clearly there were doctors who were telling the truth. They're saying, wait a minute, the masks don't work. Furthermore, uh, this pandemic is really no worse. Yes, there are people dying, but it is no worse than the seasonal flu, even though it has probably been weaponized, weaponized by our own government, Fauci and company. It's kind of curious. Fauci, the one who funded the gain of research in Wuhan, was the one who seemed to be in charge of the whole show. It's like, wait a minute. This guy who criminally, and by the way, it was criminal because uh, Congress, when they discovered gain of function research being done at the University of North Carolina, uh, and said that that is going to stop. No federal funds are to go to this gain of research. This is wicked, wicked to be uh, developing a biological weapon of mass destruction that will be more destructive than a nuclear bomb that will uh, cover the whole planet and kill millions and millions of people, maybe billions of people. This is wicked. We're not going to fund it. No more money goes to gain of function research. Well, then how did Fauci continue to fund gain-of-function research, but not in our country, not at University of you know, Chapel Hill, North Carolina? No, no, no. Over there in Wuhan, where all kinds of criminal things can happen. And, you know, the criminal government of, of uh, China, of course, part of, the, part of the whole scheme. So why isn't Fauci in jail? He committed a crime. He committed a crime of mass murder, you might say, because his funding the gain of function resulted in many millions of people dying worldwide. Why is the guy? Why is he walking free? Why is he, you know, extremely rich? Well, it's because the corrupt system has been put together that designed this whole scam. And the scam really was to scare the, the American people and the people worldwide to say, oh, you need to get this shot. This shot is going to solve all your problems. It's going to solve the problem of this, this pandemic. And as soon as you get the shot, you'll be fine. Oh, no, no, don't take ivermectin. That's horse pace. That won't help you at all, which was an absolute lie. Ivermectin, very effective. And actually, there's a lawsuit that was just concluded that proved that that's the case, that we were lied to. Ivermectin, yes, it is medically approved. And yes, medically, it will solve the problem. And so they wouldn't allow the real solutions to happen. 
because they wanted to drive everyone to get the shot. This is an illustration of the kind of, you know, the thing that uh, the Reichstag fire was all about. You create a false flag, get everybody scared that, oh, these people are going to destroy us all. And then you, you, you funnel the herd into the behavior you want them all to take, which in case of Nazi Germany was submit to your Fuhrer. Just listen and do whatever your Fuhrer, don't question the Fuhrer if, you know, and that was perfectly uh, rolled out in Nazi Germany. And, and I appreciate, Phil, you bringing this up because it, it gives us an illustration to, to use in reflecting on what happened to us in the year 2020 and the year 2021. Because a similar type of false flag, the pandemic was pulled with a similar type of funnel trying to get us all to take the shot. And you have to ask, well, what is the purpose then of all of us getting the shot? And they're very nefarious and don't really have time on the show today to go into the details, but very nefarious things. And there have been millions of people who have been permanently injured. They will never work again from taking the shot. There are others, millions who have died worldwide from taking the shot. So, yes, there are people who are fine because the evidence is there was a placebo that's right. If you're going to do a medical experiment, of course, you're going to put out a placebo. And that's what this all was, a medical experiment. That's what the emergency use, author, use authorization was granted for. A, and therefore, there's no liability for Pfizer and the other drug companies that produce this shot. Nobody can go back and sue them because, oh, this was emergency medical. And, and therefore, we were uh, doing an emergency uh, this, of, of, of an unapproved shot. We don't know what the shot effect was. It was never tested on animals, but let's test it on human beings and see what happens. Well, when you do that, you always have to have a placebo, a group that, that gets what they think is the shot, but it's really just saline. And there's clear evidence that uh, shows that there are a number of people who received a placebo, no effect at all. They didn't get sick. Another group of people who got very sick and another group of people who actually died from that. So some evil forces behind the scene we're pulling off a scam against we the people in our country, all under the guise of a medical emergency. And I would say we should never, ever allow this to happen again. It's interesting when you get into this, um, there is a relationship to Nazi Germany through something called, I understand, the Istanbul Protocol, which was derived from uh, the Nuremberg Tribunal, which investigated Nazi use of human experimentation in healthcare. And basically, there are multiple criteria in that, but one is informed consent. Um, and um, what we did have under the COVID-19 program was misinformed consent. Yeah, we really weren't told the whole truth. Hmm. And, uh, and as you pointed out, there had been no animal experimentation. And so uh, people were, in, in some cases, encouraged very strongly, and others absolutely coerced to take these shots. And that is an out-and-out out violation of the Istanbul pro Protocol, because uh, this, this ties what Fauci and, and company did with the Nazi regime. Mm -hmm. They did the same things. Yeah. Now, I have people in my congregation who are fired, fired from their job because they would not get the shot. And I know some of them are trying to get compensation and the court system seems to be against them. Others who were who were fired and they tried to, you know, collect unemployment and unemployment insurance refused. I mean, so it's like the whole the coalition of the business and the government all together to force people as strongly as they possibly could to force them into getting the shot. Uh, and that kind of coercion, you're right, it, it, it is against international law. And obviously, it is a violation of our God-given rights. So here we have an example of our government in collusion with big pharma, in collusion with big business, all together, and obviously big media, because the media was lying, oh, safe and effective, safe and effective. Really? How do you know it's safe and effective when people are dying, dropping dead suddenly? And you've probably seen videos of people who are in the top top of their athletic uh, ex excellence and so forth, dropping dead on the field, that sort of thing. How could this be uh, done 
Well, it was done by that kind of deceptive coercion all under the excuse of we have an emergency. Yeah, it's an emergency. You have to surrender. And, and we were told you're going to kill grandma because you're not getting the shot or uh, you're an evil person because you're not wearing that face diaper. All those kind of things took place. I, I, let me just share a funny story because. You know, it was one health food store, which, you know, if uh, any store should understand these things, it should be the health food store. But anyway, you know, they required a mask when you went in. So I took a, a mosquito netting. That's right. A mosquito netting. That was a face covering. And I draped the mosquito netting over my head because the mosquito netting was just as effective as those cloth masks regarding viruses. Yes, the holes in the mosquito netting are certainly larger than the cloth mask, but it makes no difference because the, the, the virus goes through the mosquito netting the same way the virus goes through the cloth mask. Oh man, the people at the store were just outraged. They were yelling at me and so forth. I was just getting some reverse osmosis water from their dispensary. So I had these two five gallon jugs of, of uh, reverse osmosis water in my cart. And so I, I rolled up to uh, the cash register to pay. And they said, no, no, you can't do that. You can't pay. Well, I said, I, I, what do you want me to do with this water then? You know, these jugs are mine. Uh, do you want me to pour the water on the floor, all 10 gallons? You know, if that's what you want me to do, I will pour the water on the floor. Oh, no, no, don't do that. Well, can I pay for that? I, I'm offering to pay. No, 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 you can't pay. It's like, until you go get a mask. I said, well, I, I'm wearing this. No, that's not a mask. So I said, okay, I have offered to pay you. You've refused to pay. You've refused to accept my payment for this. And therefore, I am just going to walk out here into the parking lot. And of course, they're mad about that as well. So I rolled my cart out to the parking lot. And uh, uh, from that point, they came running out of the store and, and I paid them in the parking lot. <laughs> so they were willing to accept my COVID-laden money in the parking lot, but not in the store. It's just insanity. And I said to these people, you're nuts. You need to go back to some basic education because as a health food store, you know nothing about human health. And you, you obviously know nothing about these face diapers uh, or viruses. Um, but that kind of uh, enormous pressure put on every level of society, the education establishment shutting down all the, all the schools and, and forcing the poor children uh, to be, you know, taking class on Zoom and all of that sort of stuff. Tragedy. They, educationally, by the way, it shows that the children suffered enormously in that year where most of them were not in the classroom. Their education uh, they lost, for, for most of them, they lost about a year of education. So this is the danger of granting emergency powers. And that's why I think we should never grant emergency powers at the federal level. Now, at the state level, the county level, maybe we want to grant some, but it has to be extremely limited. And I think uh, it almost ought to not exist. Any power that says you could suspend the Constitution because of X, Y, and Z, I think is, is a non-starter. The uh, uh, COVID-19 program, if you could honor it so, uh, had many, many evil tentacles, I think. One was uh, every discharge from a hospital, by the way, has something called an ICD, International Classification of Diseases, uh, encoding of the reason for um, the, the patient leaving the hospital, you know. And of course, death is one thing, and and uh, but the reason for the the hospitalization is uh, recorded at that time, and there was a special ICD code created for COVID nineteen, and uh, having been involved in this kind of thing in the the healthcare information systems industry, I realized what was happening, basically. The hospitals were being incentivized to encode everybody as as a uh, COVID nineteen discharge. Now, the most ridiculous, uh, and perhaps this is just a story, but nonetheless, it it uh, illustrates the situation. Uh, let us say you have a a busload of of youngsters going to a uh, a football game, and the the bus goes over a cliff. And uh, they're all killed. Well, of course, that means that an ICD code has to be assigned each. When the ICD code says they all died of COVID-19, <laughs> wouldn't someone be suspicious? Yeah. <laughs> 
And that, that happened not only, not only in that case, but it was also the incentivizing, evidently, to label on the death certificate that they died of COVID. Because the amazing thing that happened during the scandemic is that um, somehow the seasonal virus suddenly disappeared. That is, when you look at the statistics of who died of the virus, it was nearly zero died of the, the seasonal virus. Who died of COVID? Oddly enough, similar kind of number of those that died of COVID that didn't die of the seasonal virus. So it's as if somehow the, the, the seasonal flu disappeared and everybody that would have died of that now died of COVID. So if I understand correctly, hospitals were paid if they put on the death certificate, someone died of COVID. So you can guess, given human nature, they're willing to lie for a little bit of money in the pocket. You know, the hospital, I know that uh, my local hospital, Basically, they shut down all operations other than the emergency room and the ICU for, for COVID patients during the scandemic. I know that personally because I actually broke my leg in the middle of the crazy scandemic and had to have surgery uh, to uh, put in a plate and do all this kind of repair to the ankle. So in the midst of that, when I went in for the day of surgery, I overheard my nurses talking to each other about, oh, yeah, this is our first day back. We've been out for a month, out for a month, really. So that these nurses were not doing any surgeries or prep for surgeries for an entire month, nothing. And they were kind of saying, boy, I'm glad to be back to work because uh, maybe they weren't being paid during that month that they were laid off, basically. So the entire hospital was closed except COVID. And it's like, what in the world is going on here? And we know that the, the effect of that is uh, far greater because that means people who were set up for routine surgeries didn't get them. People who were set up for routine, you know, heart check and other other things that would have been done, tests that would have been, weren't being done during that entire year, which means some who had conditions didn't die of COVID, but they died because they didn't receive the medical treatment they would have received had the scandemic not been pulled off and had this emergency, this huge emergency been sold to the American people as a as an absolutely necessary thing. Well, there was prior to COVID-19, there was um, a, a counterforce uh, involved to prevent this kind of corruption. Um, it's called the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, JCAHO. And it's like uh, the adjutant general is, is doing a, a, an inspection of you. Hospitals feared these people coming in because they would look at the entire medical record and determine if the discharge diagnosis was correct because it had to do with reimbursement. Hmm. However, during the COVID-19 pandemic, all of that was waived. <laughs> How convenient. How convenient. <laughs> hmm. So I think all of this really illustrates, you know, what, what you brought up with what happened in Nazi Germany with the Reichstag, the false flag that issued in, oh, we've got this emergency. We've got to suspend the Constitution. We've got to suspend the normal way of operation. And, and we've got to sacrifice everything to this emergency. And indeed, uh, you know, that's essentially what was done uh, during uh, 2020 to 2021. And uh, I decry the fact that, uh, you know, uh, Trump was involved in this because he called for operation. Operation Warp Speed, let's speed the process through of what usually takes, I understand, six to even 10 years to approve a new vaccine. That is, you thoroughly test it with all different types of groups. You're going to test it on pregnant women. The, this, vir this vaccine was never tested on pregnant women. It was given to them nonetheless. Many of those women miscarried uh, or, or, or uh, you know, and many of them became infertile, apparently, from the shot. So all kinds of things were done that damaged the people because we allowed the government to grab emergency powers and basically suspend our Constitution that's supposed to protect our God-given rights. Well, do you think, Phil, that we can fix that problem in, in a proposed Constitution of, uh, of the issue of emergency powers? You can't fix human nature. What you can do, <laughs> what you can do is to, you know, uh, put humans in uh, governing positions on a short leash. And mm -hmm. absolutely, that's what we should do. And that's what we propose to do is uh, next week, we're going to begin looking at uh, how to structure a constitution 
Uh, we're not saying our constitution is horrible. We're just saying there are problems and there, there are things that perhaps our, our founders didn't have enough foresight to see that could be improved, changed, altered, or, or even if necessary, abolished. And uh, we hate to go to that extent, but it's quite clear that the government in Washington, D.C., and, and clearly the government in many of our state capitals, uh, Pennsylvania, Maryland being the two that come immediately to mind, are so corrupt uh, and and are violating the Constitution that does exist, that they need to be reined in and, and exactly how to do that. But we would look forward to your input as our listeners. What are some questions and thoughts that you have? You can contact me at my email at email addresses dwitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at the American View, D. Whitney at the American View. And we invite you to join us uh, next Friday morning at 8 a.m. as we start the new series uh, talking about a constitution that would truly protect our God-given rights, for that is the only purpose of human civil government. There is a creator God. Our rights come from him, and the only purpose of human civil government is to protect those God-given rights. Join us again next Friday morning, 8 a.m. at We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. <laughs>